0: Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This proverb was true of Pharaoh's heart in Egypt. Scripture says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and although Pharaoh was opposed to God's will and did not want to let the people go, Pharaoh, in all of his rebellion, perfectly accomplished God's will. This was true of King David's heart in a very different way. King David was a man after God's own heart, and you see, how he sought to honor the Lord and obey his commandments, and how when David sinned, he repented with tears. And you can read about those tears and David's longing to please the Lord in the many psalms that David left us, the prayers that he prayed as the king of Israel, who wanted to be devoted to the Lord. This proverb was true of King Nebuchadnezzar. If you read the Old Testament, the end of the book of 2 Kings, and if you read the book of Daniel, you see how God led King Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem. And yet, King Nebuchadnezzar later wrote these words. This is from Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, who who was the most powerful man in the world, God, God humbled him and afflicted him and gave him a period of his life where he was insane and he was mad. And Nebuchadnezzar wrote these words. At the end of the days, that is the end of the days of his madness, of his insanity, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? King Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges in his own life that he was in the palm of God, and God turned him wherever he wanted to. This this proverb was true of Cyrus, king of Persia. Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to send the exiles back to Jerusalem, to keep all of the promises that God made through his prophets says that God stirred in the heart of a king who didn't even believe in the Lord. It was true of Artaxerxes. Roughly 14 years later, after Cyrus initially allowed some to return, King Artaxerxes not only permitted more people to return to the land, but he financed the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall because God moved in his heart To do so. And you see Ezra and you see the people praising God for his kindness and generosity to work in the heart of a king who did not even believe. So you see again and again, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Luke as you know where we're we're at, has been showing from the beginning of his book that Almighty God is at work. He has shown an old barren woman giving birth to the prophet John. He has begun to speak to his people after 400 years of silence. And you read how the Virgin Mary conceived the Savior. And today... In Luke chapter 2, Luke shows us how Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the Roman world, was just like a stream of water in God's hand, and God turned it wherever he wanted to. Read with me Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. Scripture says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the beginning of chapter two, we begin to see that that God is moving the whole Roman empire as baby Jesus is about to be born. And, And you may remember... Mary's song in chapter 1, you remember when when the angel appears to Mary, and and Mary finds out that she is going to give birth to the Messiah, and she humbly submits to the will of God, and and she she goes and visits her cousin, and her, her cousin says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord, and so both Elizabeth and Mary are believing the visions that they 've seen they believe that God is at work, and Mary bursts into a song of praise, and maybe she she wrote this as she was walking to visit her cousin, we don't really know, but but she begins to praise the God who does this crazy miraculous thing that would have been so enormously difficult for her. And I just want to highlight one verse that she says very specifically because it seems so odd in the context. Mary says, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich, he has sent away empty. Mary is praising God that the salvation that God offers is not one more perk that the rich and the powerful get to add to their collection. That the salvation that God brings fills those who are hungry, those who do not have enough, those who are poor, those who are needy. This is why Jesus said, blessed are the poor, because God's salvation is for them and for all who look for his coming, who who look for the Savior, Jesus. You might wonder why some of the details that Luke is giving us about the birth of the Lord are, are important. Why does it matter? Well, well partly, partly Luke is a historian. He wants you to know that this really happened and he's giving you a specific place and he's telling you exactly where it happened and he's giving you a specific time and he's telling you exactly when it happened. The things that we believe are not inspirational stories that that make us feel better about life. The things that we believe happened in history and all of our hope is pinned on the baby Jesus being born just as Luke described so that one day he would grow up and die and rise from the dead so that all of us could have peace with God. Luke is telling you these details because he's telling you this happened. This is history. But not only that, Angela just read from from the book of Micah just a few verses about how the prophet Micah said very specifically that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. This is something Jesus has no control over. He can't, he can't, as a little infant, tell his mommy where to go or what to do. But God, in the most incredible way, through an edict from a non-believing emperor, moves the family of Mary and Joseph and little baby Jesus before he's even born, to exactly the place that Micah had prophesied about over 400 years before baby Jesus was born. And he is showing that God moves earthly kings to bring about his divine providence. And the irony is, Caesar can give commands that put the entire Roman world in motion. But God moves his heart, and his throne is ultimately nothing before God because the king, the real king is about to be born in a stable in Bethlehem. And Caesar has no idea. Luke is reminding us in this little passage that Jesus is the son of David. And as such, he is heir to David's throne and his earthly beginnings are very humble but he will be exalted. Scripture says in the book of Philippians, one day every knee will bow, including Caesar's, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. The day when the humble will be exalted, and the first time Jesus comes, he comes in meekness and in humility And most people have no idea who he is and what he's doing. But the next time he comes, he will be exalted and all people will see who he is and know what he's done. But while Caesar has no idea, just like, do you remember when I said that that Zechariah and Elizabeth and the joy that they have with a little baby, when they had no hope of having children of their own, their joy... And the blessing of their family is just a little taste. It's just a little flavor of the blessing of being in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not here yet, but he's giving you a hint of what it will be like. Just like that, what you see here is that God exalts the humble. And today there are many humble people who are not exalted. There are many broken people who are in incredible pain. But what we are about to see is a little taste A little foreshadow of what will be true in Christ. And my prayer today is that it gives you hope. So we've we've seen that that Caesar, although he seems to be in control, ultimately is of no significance. And so those those who are mighty will be brought low. Now let's look at the next few verses and see how God exalts the humble. Look with me at verse 8. It says, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You find God beginning to exalt the humble in the way he announces this royal birth to the humblest of people. The shepherds are humble people, especially when compared with Caesar. You're you're not going to find Caesar losing sleep out in a field somewhere, making sure a bunch of sheep are safe. That's not how the world works. Caesar is in a palace having people feed him grapes. The shepherds are stuck doing a job that no one else wants to do. It is thankless work, and yet, We we don't know for certain, but if you look at Elizabeth and Zechariah, and if you look at Mary and the people that God is choosing to announce this to, and if you look at the reaction that these shepherds have, it seems that they also are the type of people who are hungry. They are the type of people who are longing for God to work. They want God to save his people. And so what you find is there's no royal fanfare in Rome. No one in power cares at all that this baby, who seems of no significance, has been born. But God sends angels to the humblest of people to announce the royal birth, and they have real hope. But they don't start with hope. I want to point out where they start and just say a few things about what the angel announces. So, so number one, notice from the text that, that it says in verse 9, when the angel appears and they see the glory of the Lord that's shining all around them, that they were filled with great fear. And I believe that that's incredibly common for anyone who ever experiences even a taste of God's glory. Because what it would have reminded them is that even if they were the type of people who were looking for the Messiah and longing for the Messiah, they are still sinful people. And to experience the glory of God in such a tangible way would have terrified them. You, you might think of Isaiah, who goes to God's throne room in a heavenly vision. And he says, woe unto me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. His sin is the first thing on his mind, and he recognizes that he is separated from God and cut off from God because of it. And so it's very natural for them that they, as they experience the glory of God and the sheer power and the sheer beauty of it all that their sinfulness is in stark contrast and they are afraid and not only afraid they are filled with great fear but the angel says fear not for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people the good news Not that they're wrong. Their sin is deadly. But the good news is that there is a Savior who will save them from the consequences of their sin. And so you see a few things that the angel said. Number one, notice what the angel calls Jesus. He says, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, I believe... Luke is a great writer. He wants us to remember all the things that he has said about John in chapter 1. And he wants us to be thinking about them as we read about Christ. And if you read about John, you see the excitement that God has sent a prophet for his people. And you might remember, we need to hear from God... We need God to speak from us so that we know what is true. And after 400 years of silence, when God had not sent a prophet, the announcement that a prophet was here, that a prophet was coming, was big news. It was profoundly encouraging. It was hope. But it's nothing compared to the announcement of the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So John's announcement is good and beautiful, but it is just the beginning of what God is doing. Not only is there a prophet... There is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. See, a prophet can tell you what God says. And a prophet can invite you to believe. And a prophet can invite you to repent. But a prophet cannot save you. But the announcement of the angel is not just that there's a prophet coming to prepare the way, but that the Savior is coming. If you feel broken by your sin, you have hope because there is a Savior and the Savior is Christ the Lord. Now those two titles given to Jesus are so important. The first, the first word that the, the angel uses to describe Jesus as Savior lets you know that we are in danger and that there is a rescuer. But the second two, you really have to read the Old Testament to understand. So, so Christ is, is the Greek word for Messiah. And both the Greek word Christ and the Hebrew word Messiah, both of those mean anointed And anointed in the Old Testament, it really lets you know that God is with a person in a special and a particular way. So priests were anointed. You may remember that from when we went through Exodus. Priests are anointed and consecrated and cleansed so that they can serve the Lord in the temple. And they represent God to the people and the people to God. And their anointing sets them apart from everyone else. So priests are anointed. Kings are also anointed. And God is saying when when someone like Samuel, a prophet, anointed King David, that this is the one that I am giving authority to rule. And he speaks for me with my authority. And so both prophets and priests are anointed. And then as you read about the Messiah throughout the Old Testament, you find that the Messiah will be both a prophet and a priest And that those two things come together so that when the angel announces that the Christ has come, he's saying this is the one that God is giving authority to rule. And this is the one who will represent his people perfectly. And he is anointed as God's chosen Messiah to be a prophet, to be a priest, and to be a king. And so this news is that the Savior is able to save because he has God's anointing on him. He is the one that the whole Old Testament has been promising and moving towards. And not only is he the Savior, and not only is he the Christ, but he is the Lord. Now, Lord is, is a word that I think we often think of really only in connection with Christ. Or, or maybe we sometimes say, you know, good Lord. It's, it's like a soft sort of almost acceptable way of, of using a, a kind of uh, like a swear word. The reality is, Lord is the word that is used for God all through the Old Testament. If you look at your Bibles, and this is true of almost every English Bible, sometimes you'll see the word Lord in little capital letters. And what that's doing is it's substituting for the name Yahweh that Jews felt was so holy they were afraid to abuse it and to say it in a wrong way. And so instead, they would say, in Greek, the word Lord. So as as the, the Old Testament is translated into Greek, every time you see the word Yahweh, the word Lord is used. And then later, as we look at, at our English translations, we follow that tradition. So you'll see over and over and over again, Lord, Lord, Lord always refers to Yahweh. And the angel is saying, this little baby that's about to be born is the Savior. He He will rescue you. He is the Christ, he is anointed by God, and he is the Lord. He is not just another person, he is God. The arrival of that kind of person might be somewhat terrifying. You and I are lawbreakers, It's how do you feel when you're driving 10 past the speed limit and you pass a police officer? You don't thank God for law enforcement. All of us are lawbreakers and so the arrival of Christ the Lord would not be good news unless he was also the Savior. So he fills us with incredible hope because he is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that's why the angel says to them so clearly, glory to God on the highest and on earth, peace, peace among those with whom he is pleased. He does not come as a king to kill rebels. He comes as a savior to save sinners. That announcement of peace, it it might seem odd to most people because in our day, we feel like God should only affirm what we do that that we ought to just you know be pat on the head by the Lord all the time because naturally you know that, that's what our kindergarten teachers did for us, and that's you know we we always say good job and 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 just be yourself and and that's our culture we want to embrace what we feel, you have to be true to yourself, but the reality is all of us are broken and cut off from God we don't naturally have peace. The apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians, and I would encourage you, I'm going to pull a couple of verses from the whole chapter. So I would encourage you, look at Ephesians chapter 2. See how God describes us without the Savior. God says through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses. We were by nature children of wrath, God's wrath, having no hope and without God. So the announcement of peace is incredible. While we were in rebellion under God's wrath, God took it upon himself to make peace with his enemies. That is what the angel is saying. And the shepherds react to the word of God by believing it. They experience joy. They have real hope. They believe that the Savior is come. And so they want to go and see exactly what the angel described And you can see that in the following, notice what happens as they believe the announcement. This is my last point for this morning, look with me at verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. What you see in these verses, you see both the shepherds and you see Mary and Joseph obeying the instructions that God gives them and being moved to a place of real joy. They praise God. You see that happen with Zechariah, the priest. You see that happen with Elizabeth. As they believe what God has said and promised, they're, they're moved to a place of joy. You see it happen with Mary, and we, and we already mentioned Mary's song. All this happens in chapter one. You see again and again, people hear the word of God, they believe it, and they're moved to a place of real joy and hope. My prayer for each of us this morning is that we would experience that joy and hope as we believe what the scriptures say about us and about the hope that we have in the future. So, so as, as we close this message, Jesus is called the Savior, he's, he's the Christ, he's the Lord, he, he's being contrasted with John. What God is doing through, through John the Baptist is a good thing and it's an exciting thing. But what Jesus is doing for us is even greater. And so, as I said, you get, you get a little bit of a down payment of what happens to everyone through Jesus. Either you are humble, like the shepherds, and like Mary, and like Elizabeth, and Zechariah, and you enjoy the blessings of Jesus, or you are proud, and all of this seems irrelevant. And one day, with Caesar Augustus, you will bow the knee before your Lord, who has not been your Savior, and you will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But you will not be in a place of joy. Or, with great humility, you will recognize your need for this Savior now. And you will begin to taste that joy because of what God has already done. And, and I want to I make this very real. I, I want to acknowledge there is an aspect of all of the things that, that the scriptures tell us about that has not happened yet when Mary praises God that that he brings down the mighty from their thrones and he lifts those up of humble estate, Jesus is still not universally worshipped. And Rome ruled for a few hundred years beyond the birth of Christ. Most of Rome thought Christianity was a strange, weird sect of Judaism. They do not bow the knee to Jesus. But one day, every knee will and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The thing that Luke is telling us is that the change has started. It's like a little seed has been planted in the ground. In fact, Jesus says this is the case. The kingdom of God, it's like a little mustard seed. It doesn't look like much right away, but it's going to grow. And the question for you and I today is when you hear the word of God, do you believe it? Do you accept the salvation that God offers you? Are you hungry for good things? Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And you can see why. He says, because all those who listen to the Lord and obey him... The people that saw the angels, the people that believed the vision, all of them find themselves full of joy and praising him as they recognize what God is doing. They listen to the Lord because they are hungry for him to speak and act, and they are thrilled when they hear the good news. So my question for you this morning is, are you hungry for what God is doing, or are you full of things that have no eternal value. It's very possible to chase things that seem like they're worth something, but they will have no no value whatsoever when you look at Jesus face to face one day. Are you hungry to hear God speak in his word? As you read about the salvation that Jesus offered, that he died for you and rose from the dead, do you realize that that's for you? Today, As we worship the Lord in song, do you worship freely from a thankful heart for what God has done for you? Or will you command your own life as if you're in control until it's too late? I want to urge you today to recognize that just like Caesar was upon, unless we recognize who Jesus is now, one day, we will wake up and realize that everything has been in vain and we missed the most important announcement in all of history. And I want to beg you now to recognize who Jesus is and what he came to do. Let's pray. You know, as we think about what Jesus did as as he was born as he died in our place and as he rose from the dead, Jesus tells us, if you believe that, you ought to be baptized. You, you ought to say, I deserve to die the way Jesus did. And because Jesus rose from the dead, I can be raised with him. And if you need to be baptized, let me urge you to talk to me about that today. You can declare your allegiance to the Lord by obeying him. And if you're a believer this morning already, let me challenge you to be living for the Lord now, to live your life in the reality that King Jesus is on a throne now. Make sure you're ready to see him face to face. Father in heaven, I want to ask you now to humble our proud hearts. Father, we want to glorify you, and and, and we probably don't want to as much as we should. And we confess that, that we are selfish and want to do things that are not glorifying to you. We ask for your forgiveness, and we pray that you would humble us no matter the cost. We want to submit to you today in every way, just as Jesus did And we ask for your help. We want to rejoice at what you are doing through Jesus. We pray that you would do this in us. In Jesus' name, amen.